and welcome to the Artful Maestro podcast. I'm your host, Nenad Leonard, a harpsichordist and organist who found himself living in the 21st century, talking to you about the big changes and revolutions we are going through as classical musicians today. You know, I have had the privilege of exploring some of the most beautiful places of this world, sharing reverberant sounds and hidden messages of music with people who love the classics as much as I do. And yet, here I am, equally fascinated by the boundless opportunities and also challenges of the digital realm. So, why this podcast? Well, every episode is designed as a guide through the labyrinth of the digital age, especially curated for you, my fellow classical musicians. We'll talk about digital marketing, we'll unravel the mysteries of social media, explore online portfolio creation, and even chat with other industry experts. So consider this your backstage pass to a harmonious blend of the traditional and the modern. Together, let's transition into a future where classical music is not only surviving, but actually thriving in the digital world. This podcast is brought to you by our main sponsor, Leonard Full Shop, the perfect spot for musicians to grab a gift for that one colleague you actually never know what you should buy for them. Or just grab some eye-catching gear for your next rehearsal. In addition, as a podcast listener, you get to use the code ARTFUL5 for a 5% discount on everything. Go and check out what's in the store. You will probably find some of the stuff of your favorite composer there as well. And now, we have got a lot to dive into, so without further ado, let's get into today's topic. And today's topic, also being the first episode, is probably one of the most important topics that we can start with. I'm talking, of course, about music and history, in specific music history and world history, and how these big changes influenced the classical music. So we are really focusing on the classical music development up until today. If you do know me, I do like to start at the foundation of everything, always looking at where it all began, because this has obviously very different reasons, but, you know, otherwise we might overlook some very important aspects or we might forget about them, building on ideas that maybe aren't even good ideas at all. So, let's look at the foundations and look at the basics. This is the most important to begin with, just to have a solid structure. Whatever you do, look at the basics. I always say to understand where we are going, we need to look at where we came from. And this is also very important to understand in regular life. Doing a regular audit every week, every month, every year, 
just looking at your life from another perspective will give you very, very good things. Now, whatever is important to you in this audit, just look at your private life and your professional life, maybe at the technique or mastery of your instrument that you are playing, or maybe just looking at your life goals, at some plans, or maybe even relationships with your friends or family or with your partner. Just doing a regular audit can help so much. I am saying this because, as previously stated, if we ask ourselves, where do I come from? I can find out what was important. And looking at where I am now, I can tell what's important now for me. But also I can figure out how do I want my ideal future to look like, right? So just by having these experiences from the past and experiencing the present, I can actually shape up some future and I can also know what about to expect. Super important, always write it all down and create a plan. So why do all that? Because it strengthens your awareness and you start to understand yourself and your surroundings better. You start to understand why you made certain decisions the way that you made them and how maybe different things just unconsciously got into your life and influenced you to do some things that you maybe didn't want to do at that point. It ultimately helps you achieve your goals because this way, by thinking and writing down, you start making it real and you also start taking it apart. When preparing for this podcast, I also thought last minute of an experiment that has changed my thinking of what it means to be human so much and I would like to share it with you. And this is the experiment that scientists have done with, I think it was four or five monkeys in a cage. So what they did was to put these monkeys in a cage and then they took a ladder and on the top of the ladder they put in some bananas in a, on a plate or something. Anyway, these monkeys really wanted to go and get these bananas. They needed to get up there because maybe they were hungry or they just wanted to eat them. But at that exact moment where the first monkey would touch the ladder, the scientists would then take water hoses with extremely cold water and spray down all the other monkeys that were not touching the ladder. So these monkeys got conditioned to actually, whenever anyone touched the ladder, they would be sprayed with ice cold water. So they tried everything to prevent any monkey from touching the ladder. Which means whenever the first monkey wanted to get up there, they just took him down and beat him up. And this actually happened so often that the monkeys never touched the ladder. They saw the bananas, but they knew whenever I try to get them, I will get beat up. Now it gets interesting because the scientists would take out a monkey from the cage and exchange it with a new one. 
So we will have like this small society formed in the cage and then a new monkey would come in the cage, knowing nothing of the rules, seeing those bananas and obviously trying to reach them. What happened? The other monkeys came and beat him up as well. So very fast, this monkey also learned, whenever I touch the ladder, I will get beat up. It got conditioned as well. And so the scientists exchanged every monkey in the cage, one after the other. So every new monkey that came into the cage knew nothing of the rules of this civilization, but very quickly got conditioned to touching the ladder, I will get beat up. Don't try to go for the bananas. At a certain point, all the monkeys, like the four or the five that were to begin with, were exchanged with new monkeys that never actually started to climb the ladder because they would always get beat up by the others and they would be beating up other monkeys without ever understanding that someone could spray them down with ice-cold water. This never happened again because they were just beating themselves up. So this is how conditioning works. And again, when doing an audit, this is why I think it's so important to write everything down and to see where you come from and to see where you are now so you can decide where you will go. Because in this way, you get to really have very accurate data. And this is what I want to do as a foundation for our very first podcast and for the podcasts that are to come. This ultimately helps us achieve all of our goals because this way we start making it real. Also, it's important to do this regularly because our perspectives shift. As time passes, so does our surroundings change and our preferences change and our goals change and doing a regular audit is really helping here. That is why we're really starting at the beginning here and taking today in this podcast the time to audit everything that happened up until now. So where are we now with classical music? Where have we been in the world history? And where have we been in the classical music industry? And we are going to focus on the evolution of it all. So, let's go and start some more than 40,000 years ago. And see what's up with our predecessors. As we look around in history, we will find our first bone flutes. These have been found at burial sites or some fire sites and allegedly the oldest artifact found up to this date is a 50,000 year old bone flute in Slovenia carved in a cave bear bone by some Neanderthals that were living there. So this is not even our own species, it's not Homo sapiens, but it's Neanderthals that made this oldest bone flute that we found. And there are also other similar finds scattered all over the place. Apparently, music started out at about this time. The actual origins of music, they remain highly disputed among professionals. Many related to the origin of language, 
But there is a lot of disagreement surrounding this topic. Did music arise before or did it arise after or did it arise simultaneously with actual language? Now, I cannot give you any kind of definitive answer on this topic, but I would like to give you two perspectives that I find extremely interesting and you can just use them to form your own opinion on this. So, the first perspective is I found out several years ago that actually music therapy is really helping recreate speech regions in the brain of people who maybe had an accident or did have to have some surgery, did get a part of their brain injured or removed. Now, the speech region is the Broca's area originally and there is um, everything language-related in there. But with music therapy, people started developing speech regions in other parts of the brain after the injury or after the surgery, which means that apart from the brain being a very flexible organ that can somehow regenerate itself or recuperate in forms that we didn't think possible earlier, Apparently, music is closely related to speech and language. And now the second perspective that I would like to tell you about is that at the same time where we find these bone flutes, there are also cave paintings arising and also markings like symbols in caves as well. And not just in Homo sapiens, like our own species, but other species scattered all over Europe and recently I've heard that even in South Africa some humanoid uh, species has created symbols over their own burial sites in a cave. So regardless of what you think of these things we can agree that this is a fundamental shift in the human development. Everything changes. And putting it together in a few words or maybe a few words that we can use to describe this very shortly, I would like to create two aspects. The one being of representation. Representation is arising, which is basically just using something to represent something else. This is very normal for us today. And to explain it, maybe let's think of a photograph. When we are looking at a photograph, we are actually thinking of the person it is representing, right? Assuming we know that person. But let's say I have a photograph of my partner in my wallet, like people used to do earlier. So they would kind of bring this person with them on their trips, uh, wherever they're going. So this is something that we developed as humans right about these 40, 50,000 years ago. Basically, people would create representations of mammoths, of other people, of maybe trees, of rivers. It's a different collection of representations that can also show different scenes. So putting them in a context or creating a larger sense of those. So these same symbols of simple things 
can start creating representations of more complex situations. Now, I'm not a scientist or expert on this field, but somehow I get the hunch that this is the actual first time that abstract ideas could start to exist. Now, things that can't necessarily be felt through our senses, but created with a concept um, that can be created like in the background or an idea that could arise by maybe grouping these representations together, either outside or inside of the brain. And this is also the start where things like spirituality, like religions, like cultures and societies can form and take an identity, because many of them are based on abstract ideas, things that we do not see in the real world like one-to-one, -one, but explanations and also looking behind the meaning of things happening that are created and that I will call abstract ideas. Obviously, this is a gradual process, right? It's not coming from today or um, tomorrow, but this is a um, gradual process that happened over hundreds and probably thousands of years. But we are not just talking about representation. We are also having expression. Expression being the other very big aspect here. And this would be actually the most simple way and also like the basis of all communication to show one's inner world to the outside. So whatever is happening on the inside, if there is a thought, if there is um, some kind of relation to anything, uh, to a representation maybe, it can be put onto the outside world. So other human beings can understand what's going on the inside. There is a possibility for a thought or for an emotion to take form and to be brought outside of anyone's inner perception. And these ideas can be represented, then they can be exchanged with others. And there are many ways that something can get expressed, right? So with the new possibility of differentiation through these representations, people also started creating emotions. And this is a big one. I'm choosing the word here, creating emotions on purpose, because ultimately these aren't a basic level of human experience or of feeling that we portray them to be. In fact, I think 99% of what we describe as emotions are in fact intellectual representations of certain sensations happening in our body. And this is very important to understand regarding expression. I will come back to this and explain more detail later, but for now, let's just stick with this. Representation is the use of something, a drawing, a symbol, a word or sound or an object like a stick to represent something else, a person, a tribe, an animal, a situation, whatever you want to have represented. Again, think of that like a photograph of someone that you know. In that case, 
looking at it. It's just a piece of paper with a little bit of paint or print on it. But you do know it represents this exact person. And you think and you feel about that person when looking at the representation. Now, expression is the act of creating or forming this representation in the outside world. It starts from the inside, let's say brain, and is brought into the world outside through different means. Now, maybe you've figured it out, but this is the most basic act that describes art. Let me tell it again. This is the most basic description of an act that could be creation of art. Taking something from the inside and transforming it into something that affects the real world. Now, the concept of doing it in an artistic way would add to that affecting the world in a meaningful way. It was suggested to me by a former teacher that the word music is closely related to the word magic, by the way. So while I haven't found evidence to support this claim, I still like the idea that there is something magical being transferred through the act of creating music. Music is transcending the meaning of words, after all, which is, I think, very clear for all of us. And we do know that we can express things through music that can't be expressed through any other means. Now, in any case, the representation and the expression give way to the probably most important single thing that we have as human beings and that we have had in our evolution. And that is storytelling. So without representation and without expression, there would be no storytelling. Why is it so important? Well, it emerged from these two very simple skills we started developing as primates, but it enabled us to create complex civilizations and cultural structures that we have today. It's basically taking these two very simple things and combining them in very creative ways that have opened up completely new things. Storytelling is also probably the most influential feat when it comes to our psychology and also our identity. So this one is huge. If you think about it, even if it's the simplest, most basic story that can be told in a few words, we are thinking in stories, we are communicating in stories, we remember in stories, and we create new stories. Now, this is the actual meaning of being creative, if you want to see it that way. But also lying is creating new stories. History, as we know it, are stories. They're a collection of stories. These have been written down by somebody at some point in time. And let's not forget that history does not represent the truth or the facts, but just a perspective of someone that is leaning on facts. And sometimes these get distorted. 
So this is why you can have two very different history books from different countries that tell you a very different story about the exact same events. Us humans are the same. We will always find a way to tell our story and we will create our own reality that we live in and we will always try to enforce this reality in many different ways also onto others. Now, this probably has to do with the fact that we as humans, we also always strive to find meaning. What do things mean? Why is this happening? And everything is covered with stories. And these stories shape our identity and we need something to be constant or something to be true. And this is why people can get very defensive around their own stories. Now, it must have been a crucial step in education and the evolution of human knowledge to be able to pass on experiences onto others without them having to survive through the same situation. You know, to be able to explain when the best time of the day is to cross the river or which parts of the woods contain the most berries or the best berries or how dry the branches have to be to create actual fire. Now this will have started saving valuable time and resources and also many, many human lives as well. Being able to communicate with each other is the foundation of how we develop as a society. Just look at little kids, now how they learn and how they develop and in what way their parents teach them about life. It's been the same process for tens of thousands of years. And we are talking about this because remember, music is closely connected to the speech region in the brain and as well as the development of representational perception. Looking at this from a broader perspective, Wikipedia will tell us the following about storytelling. Storytelling is the social and cultural activity of sharing stories, sometimes with improvisation, theatrics or embellishment. Every culture has its own stories or narratives, which are shared as a means of entertainment, education, cultural preservation or instilling moral values. Crucial elements of stories and storytelling include plot, characters and narrative point of view. The term storytelling can refer specifically to oral storytelling, but also broadly to techniques used in other media to unfold or disclose the narrative of a story. Looking at the historical perspective, Wikipedia says, Storytelling intertwined with the development of mythologies predates writing. The earliest forms of storytelling were usually oral, probably combined with gestures and expressions. Some archaeologists believe that rock art, in addition to a role in religious rituals, may have served as a form of storytelling for many ancient cultures. Cave paintings may have been means to illustrate a story or for the storyteller to remember it in the first place. 
the story was then told using a combination of oral narrative, music, rock art and dance, which would bring understanding and meaning to human existence. Folk tales often share common motives and themes, suggesting possible basic psychological similarities across various human cultures. So, just a disclaimer, here the archetypes are referred to, and I would like to discuss those later. Keep those in mind, archetypes. Going back to Wikipedia, folk tales often share common motives and themes, suggesting possible basic psychological similarities across various human cultures. Other stories, notably fairy tales, appear to have spread from place to place, implying memetic appeal and popularity. Now again, memes I am sure you have heard about. Um, they're accompanying the rage comics that have taken the internet by surprise a couple of years ago, but this is only a subset of what a meme actually is. We will talk about what memes are, as well as the archetypes, at a later point. Just keep those in mind for a moment. Going back to Wikipedia, groups of originally oral tales can coalesce over time into story cycles, like for example the Arabian Nights, cluster around mythic heroes like King Arthur, and develop into narratives of the deeds of the gods and saints of various religions. The results can be episodic, like the stories about Anansi. They can be epic, as with the Homeric tales. They can be inspirational and or instructive, as in many Buddhist or Christian scriptures. At this point, the article basically goes on to tell you that stories have been written down and painted and etched on every kind of imaginable material surface, and they have found their place in all kinds of forms to every corner of the world. So, talking about this, this is the beginning of everything that we perceive is culture. And that is the reason why traveling to different countries and meeting other cultures from all over the globe, it can be so exciting and also so very enlightening for our own soul. Just meeting people like yourself who have a completely different set of references and representations and expressions. Now, personally, I always get to have a new perspective when traveling and I can refresh my view on certain points that have maybe gotten a little too stale at home. I really get to come home a changed person, and this is thanks to other perspectives that I'm confronted with. But also just studying ancient cultures and trying to figure out their interpretation of the world and the meaning of life, it can be extremely exciting. Now, this one is even more puzzling because we don't have the possibility to ask contemporaries, like when traveling, but we have to content ourselves with historical research and assumptions based on probability. So we are creating our own modern interpretations of things from a distant past. So these are stories 
layered upon layers upon layers. Just imagine. So we have an ancient culture creating their own stories and creating representations of these stories. And then we lose the connection to this culture, but we find them in archaeology. We find these symbols and now we are creating our own interpretations and our own stories around this culture and around these representations that we find from them merely from our own perspective. We can have an educated perspective and this is what is happening, but these are just layers and layers of stories one onto the other. And here I would also like to throw in something that I have learned about emotions from a personal experience but also from consulting a large number of external resources. This has been something that has been shaping up um, in myself over the last couple of years and I've already mentioned it. So human emotions have been oftentimes a very essential topic of different kinds of research and because they are connected so much to art and to music and to human expression, I would like to suggest a radical perspective change at this point. A perspective change on how we are taught to deal with emotions and how the Western world views emotions in general. Because I think it is a very incomplete perspective. I will not go too much into detail on how and why this view is very problematic for us today as a society. This will probably be a topic for another podcast. But looking at human nature, the following circumstances are crucial to understand. So let me repeat this that I've already mentioned before. Our species created the concept of emotions so they could transfer the idea of how they feel to one another. On a basic level, I don't know how you feel and you don't know how I feel. I have no idea of how it is to be in your body or how your perception works. Actually, uh, science has found recently that um, looking into our eyes, we have so many different parts of how our eyes are made that it is very unlikely that two persons sitting next to each other will have the same visual perception of the world. In fact, we can prove that our visual perceptions are different. So, how would I even know how it feels to be in your body? And how would you know how it feels to be in mine? Uh, and this is actually a very problematic thing, uh, which we try to work around as humans. It's really hard to try to feel into some other person or that person's body, but we actually have some kind of mechanism to do that. What we have are mirror neurons, and these mirror neurons are used to learn everything from our surroundings, from our parents, from our grandparents, from everyone that is involved in our education. So as children, we use the mirror neurons to copy everything around us, but these are mostly active when we are children and later quiets down when our personalities have formed. So at this point, we start using concepts. 
And the same is true about representations, by the way. There is no 100% guarantee that people are talking about the same thing when they use the same words. The use for words is shaped by culture, by upbringing, by surrounding. And when I say love, which is a very good example because love is a word with so many connotations, everyone has a different concept of what love actually is. Even if they can agree on some common term or, uh, you know, some common idea, it is a very different thing for every one of us. And you have certainly found yourself in situations up until today where you and another party would maybe have an argument using the same words, but we're talking about very different things indeed. And it is very difficult for us as humans to start relating to one another and to start really understanding what's going on, even if we're using the same words. And I think this is a very big challenge also for us. But to summarize around this expression issue, what we definitely can agree on is that every one of us has very specific sensations in our body when we find ourselves in a certain situation. Emotions are sensations put in some kind of story or some kind of context. So what is really, really true are these sensations that we actually feel and then later we use representations or emotions to communicate those. There are a couple of very easy tests that you can do yourself to understand this concept. And this concept, I think, is extremely important to understand how art functions. So let's do the tiger example. Let's talk about a tiger. We find ourselves in a rainforest. or We find ourselves in the jungle and a tiger comes out of the bushes. Now, seeing this tiger, there's a very distinct reaction going on in our body. Actually, there are a couple of different processes that we can directly pinpoint in the body where they are. Maybe there's a tension in the muscles, um, in the legs, or maybe there is a shock uh, of breath, and then the breath becomes very flat, or maybe... There's a tension of the muscles in the upper body. Maybe there is a, a stance that we take to run away. And even if we are, it's us too, in the jungle, seeing this tiger, we can experience different sensations, as we've talked before. But to describe those sensations, we would use the same word, fear. Now, Looking at this word fear, it doesn't work the other way around. The term fear as emotion is very unspecific and it can't be really located in the body like the sensations can if you would be seeing a tiger. And it is a concept to describe a number of different situations. So if you're about to have an exam, for example, and you are unprepared, 
you might experience somewhat different or even very different bodily sensations than when being confronted with this tiger in the jungle. But you would also label these sensations as fear. Now this is very useful doing that because it makes communication much easier. I saw the tiger, I had fear. I wasn't prepared for the exam, I am experiencing fear. So I can communicate it to others and they can somewhat relate, especially if they wouldn't have been in the situation, for example, uh, never being unprepared for an exam. But by examining this process closely, it also means that it is extremely inaccurate, in a way, from a certain perspective. Because I'm generalizing these sensations and I'm creating a narrative fear that is put around all of these different situations. The other test that you could do would be, for example, with little kids, like with toddlers. You will actually see them develop concepts of emotions over time. They don't do this from the beginning. A three-year-old might say to their parent, I love your arm, mommy. And let's say they're riding the train for a longer period of time and they have their, around, uh, their arm around the kid, you know, the parent, and they feel like expressing what they feel inside. With age, they will not say, I love your arm or your arm feels so great, but they will learn to conceptualize these independent feelings into a, let's call it, larger emotion that then might be connected to an actual person. And the eight-year-old might understand that this arm is actually connected to mommy and that they will in fact love mommy and they will say, I love you, mommy. So this is how this concept develops and is super interesting to understand because it is the foundation of how we create our identity as a person and also how we create identities as societies and as cultures. The failure to understand these steps or the forgetting of how we actually arrived to this stage where we are today is in fact responsible for a lot of pain and suffering. So be clear on this. Emotions can be viewed as a conceptualizing and intellectualizing of sensations. And this can be very detrimental to your own well-being as well as in your communication with others. So to sum it up, conceptualizing and intellectualizing emotions is a very important part of our culture and society, but it is not the whole truth and we need to be educated about this and we need to understand that this is not the only way how things work. We could even say that emotions are in fact some kind of stories. They are definitely governed by the stories that we tell ourselves. I'm sure that you know of two people who react in very opposite ways being in the absolutely same situation, which ultimately means these emotions that these people feel depend a lot of their mindset. Um, whatever mindset they are having at that moment, they will be experiencing different emotions because 
this mindset depends a lot of the identity of these people and this identity and this mindset have been created with stories. As humans, we come from a different background that is much simpler and ultimately wants to be addressed in these modern times too. Do you have freedom? And can you be free from a constant necessity of storytelling to yourself? And this is so important that I will be dedicating at least one whole episode just to this topic. Also, we have already delved a little bit into it. But for now, let's just stick with the realization that emotions are in fact somewhat created through the stories we tell ourselves and they are deeply connected to our personal identity as well as cultural identity. This also means that the same situation in different cultures or in different times would invoke different emotions. And this might go so far as to be complete opposites too. To understand how much this can shake things up, we are living right now in times of major changes ourselves. Probably you have noticed that right now in our society, a lot of topics are being discussed publicly and being reframed in a new light as to what this particular situation means. We are actually creating a whole new culture based on all these new redefinitions. We are redefining meaning of things and this is not a small thing. We are changing future generations through this. So for now, we have covered the human evolution, the emergence of representation and expression, and the resulting foundation of storytelling on which all societies, cultures, and even personal identities have been built. Now let's see what humans have done with this and what major changes happened since then. Let us talk about the agricultural revolution that happened some 12,000 years ago. Now before the agricultural revolution, humans were primarily hunter-gatherers. They moved from place to place they were foraging for food and following animal migrations when they happened. But then something extraordinary happened. They started to settle down. People began to cultivate plants and to domesticate animals in a big way. Now, this impact was very, very big because for the first time, humans could produce more food that they consumed, so more food that they actually needed, which was leading to surplus. This surplus meant that not everyone had to be involved in food production, because they, being so productive in food production, were able to start doing different things. This gave rise to specialization as we know it today. So we have developing artisans, we have developing warriors, and eventually entire civilizations that were extremely complex organs, if you look at it this way. 
And it basically means that our jobs that we have today were made possible through this revolution. Without it, there wouldn't have been nearly as much resources to put in the development of culture. So we would have no orchestras, we would have no cultural heritage, basically, because we still would have been very much involved in food production. But also this agricultural revolution wasn't all rosy. It also brought challenges like health issues. It brought challenges like social inequality, the concept of property and even environmental degradation. But there is no denying its monumental impact. It laid the foundation for everything that we know as civilization today. This is a testament to human ingenuity and our ever-evolving relationship with the earth, starting right then and there. Maybe the next time you do enjoy a meal, just take a moment to think about the thousands of years of innovation and hard work that made it possible. It is such a privilege to live in today's times and to have access to food in this way. It's a fascinating journey, one that continues to shape our world in ways big and small, and it's not finished yet. Let's go and talk about the ancient civilizations that resulted from the agricultural revolution. So we are talking about some 5,000 to 2,500 years ago. This includes the rise of the river valley civilizations, which were the first major civilizations around river valleys, including the Sumerians in Mesopotamia, the Egyptians along the Nile, the Indus Valley Civilization, and the Shang Dynasty in China. Also, there was the establishing of the Silk Road, an ancient trade route connecting the East and West, facilitating the exchange of goods, of ideas, and of cultures. Further in the West, we have the emergence of classical civilizations, the Greek and Roman empires. Now, they made significant contributions in philosophy, in science, and in politics. These two empires, separated by time and geography, have left an indelible mark on the fabric of modern society, from our governments to our philosophies and even our entertainment. Let's start out with Greece. Greece is often considered the cradle of Western civilization. Now you can picture these city-states of Athens and of Sparta, each a unique experiment in governance and society. In Athens, we have the birthplace of democracy, the questioning of the status quo. We have visions of an ideal society, foundations of logic and natural sciences. And then we have the arts, the epic tales, the tragedies and the comedies, all of which continue to be performed and adapted still today. As a small boy, I have been told countless stories from the Greek mythology by my grandfather, almost 3,000 years 
after these stories have been told for the first time. I remember me sitting there in the warm summer nights, listening in awe, a six-year-old boy, wondering what will happen to the warriors hiding in the Trojan horse. Now, let's fast forward a few centuries to Rome, an empire that is so vast that it spanned three continents at its height. Rome took the Greek foundation and they built upon it, creating a republic that eventually became an empire. They gave us the concept of citizenship, a legal system that serves as the basis for many modern democracies and monumental architectural feats like the Colosseum and the Roman aqueducts. Latin, the language of the Romans, lives on in so many languages of today, and it also serves as the basis for much of our scientific and legal terminology. But what is truly fascinating is how these two civilizations interacted already back then. Rome was deeply influenced by Greek art, by philosophy and by Greek governance. And the Greek gods were adopted into the Roman pantheon just with a name change. Zeus became Jupiter and Athena became Minerva. So this is a beautiful example of cultural exchange and adaptation already happening 2,500 years ago. So why should we care about these ancient civilizations today? Why did I bring up exactly these examples? Well, because our societies today are built on this foundation. Because thinking about them can challenge us to think about the enduring issues that we have of governance, of justice, of the human condition in general. And they remind us that many of the questions we grapple with today have been pondered for millennia. And sometimes there is still not a final solution to be found. Now, this is something that I find truly fascinating about the human existence. We have so many different parts of ourselves and of our beings trying to interact with other humans and the world around us. And it's always been an adapting process. Some things don't have solutions. They are just processes. Um, this can be seen in art a lot. So at this point, I would like to touch on the topic of the archetypes that I have mentioned before. This because they are also crucial to understand how these things are developing. Now, Wikipedia will tell us that the concept of an archetype appears in areas relating to behavior, to historical psychology, and to literature. So let's look into it. An archetype can be any of the following. A statement, a pattern of behavior, a prototype, a first form, or a main model that other statements, patterns of behavior, and objects copy, emulate, or merge into. Synonyms frequently used for this definition include standard example and basic example. 
Now, archetype can also be the platonic concept of a pure form, believed to embody the fundamental characteristics of a thing. Now, you can basically think of it as the opposite of what we talked about representation. We talked about representation of seeing things in the real world and then going back into the cave and then representing those with pictures um, or with stones or whatever. But Plato stated that the physical world is not as real or true as ideas, which are timeless, absolute and unchangeable. So archetypes can also be a collectively inherited unconscious idea, a pattern of thought, an image, etc., that is universally present in individual psyches. So looking at this, it could be like an idea that has been transmitted through cultural inheritance or as scientists call it often in uh, the pop term, nurture. So basically ideas that have been given through nurture. But it can also mean a constantly recurring symbol or motive in literature, painting or mythology um, with this definition referring to the recurrence of characters or ideas sharing similar traits throughout various seemingly unrelated cases in classic storytelling or media, etc. So this is suggesting a genetic inheritance of these ideas or a nature way of transmitting them, um, which is a somewhat large suggestion that there is like a blueprint of seeing things in the world that is just hardwired into the brain and we reacting through this blueprint or through this hardwiring always arrive at the same stories uh, regardless of the culture where we are at. Now archetypes are also very close analogies to instincts in that long before any consciousness develops, it is the impersonal and inherited traits of human beings that present and motivate human behavior. They also continue to influence feelings and behavior even after some degree of consciousness developed later on. So, basically, I find all of this fascinating because it suggests that deep down, as human beings, we have certain patterns and structures of thinking that are ingrained into our being, regardless if these are inherited through nature or nurture, these patterns are deep inside of us. And apparently, when we are creating representations or when we are creating stories, we are somewhat limited or we can also say we're somewhat guided by these patterns in our thinking. Now, I will throw at you the concept of the hero's journey, which was popularized by Joseph Campbell, an American mythologist, in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I have the book right behind in my bookshelf, and it has fascinated me for years. Because Campbell argued that most myths and stories across cultures share 
common structures, somewhat of an universal template that taps into our collective unconscious. Now, this journey of the hero, the hero's journey, consists of several key stages, and it starts out with the call to adventure. So the hero is plucked from their ordinary world and thrust into a new, often dangerous realm. And again, this is repeated in so many different cultures in so many different times. We start with the call to adventure, but the hero doesn't go on this way alone. Because along the way, they do meet mentors. And then there are some trials and tribulations and some enemies, but then also some allies. And often there is also a descent into the metaphorical or the literal underworld. So the hero will descend to death, which results in a cycle of death and rebirth, culminating in the return of the hero where the hero comes back to their original world, transformed and bearing gifts. These are either physical gifts or metaphorical gifts, but something that will benefit their community. Now, the thing is, this pattern is real. You will find it in every major story that has been told throughout the ages. And these are stories that have been shaping societies past and societies to come. These are even so popular that you will find it in movies like Star Wars, like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Every major storytelling that has shaped our society is based on the hero's journey structure. So why Does it resonate so universally? Well, honestly, we do not know. This is why I talk to you about the archetypes. They are a strong suggestion why it might work, but we still don't know. Perhaps it's also just somehow mirroring our own life experience. And it is some kind of a story that we can tell ourselves and that, that is shaping our thought patterns and our life experience ultimately. So we all do face challenges, we all do meet mentors, and we all do undergo transformation. So what if this hero's journey blueprint is something that is psychologically very useful for us to keep us motivated, just like a narrative blueprint embedded in our psyche? Well, I just find it to be extremely fascinating. And honestly, the people in the Renaissance era thought so too. So when we fast forward to after the Middle Ages or the so-called Dark Ages, as they're sometimes called, because of the collapse of several large civilizations at the time and loss of a lot of artworks and knowledge. But Not every historian agrees on it being only um, a dark time. And also they have valid arguments why it is not just a dark time. But regardless, let's fast forward to after the Middle Ages, where we have the time of the Renaissance. 
The Renaissance being a cultural movement in Europe that saw renewed interest in the arts, in the science and in humanism, all based on the classical civilizations that we've discussed. But also we have the age of exploration. So European powers exploring and colonizing parts of Africa, the Americas and Asia, leading to significant global exchanges and the rise of empires. And we also have the scientific revolution. So pioneers like Galileo, Newton and Copernicus challenging traditional views of the universe and laying the groundwork for modern science. This era, spanning roughly from the 14th to the 17th century, was a veritable explosion of art, science and intellectual thought, and it definitely laid most of the cultural groundwork for the modern world as we know it. Now, the term Renaissance itself means rebirth, and that is precisely what it was, a rebirth of classical knowledge and wisdom, largely inspired by the rediscovery of ancient Greek and Roman texts. But it wasn't just a revival, it was an evolution and a period that took the seeds of the past but cultivated him into a garden of new ideas. Because they weren't really copying the classical civilizations. They couldn't, right? They were there and the classical civilizations happened 2000 years ago. Humans did change a little bit during that period of time. So basically what they did is they took much from the past and made it their own, using it with their own interpretations, their own stories. And we could speak of a very strong inspiration based on the classical civilizations, on the Romans and on the Greeks. So let's talk about the art first. Names like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo and Raphael might come to your mind. And these artists didn't just paint pretty pictures with some great proportions, but they revolutionized the very concept of what art could be. We get perspective, we get anatomy, we get emotion. And these are new developments that become integral elements of artistic expression. Art should ultimately reflect God's creation in all of its beauty and glory. And in order to do so, God's creation had to be studied thoroughly. So it could first be understood and then represented through art. And this is where a genius like da Vinci really excelled. But the Renaissance wasn't just about art. It was a holistic movement that created deep stirrings in science and technology as well. Think of figures like Galileo, who challenged the geocentric model of the universe, or Copernicus, who dared to place the sun at the center of our solar system. Unbelievable, right? These were radical, even dangerous ideas at the time, but they were made and they fundamentally changed our understanding of the cosmos. 
What is important and interesting for us to note is that all of these astronomers, Newton included, they created their own treatises on music. So music was considered a science at the time, as well as in the Baroque period that followed, which basically means that all the great minds of the Renaissance were also occupied with music theory. Admittedly, yes, this was more on the side of physics and acoustics, but it still had music at its center. Galilei, for example, created a blueprint on what mathematical fraction to use in order to create a perfect distribution for frets on a new guitar. Now, I think if I remember correctly, he calculated it to be something of 17 eighteenths or something like that of the string that is still available, so it would be like an exponential thing. In any case, the ultimate goal here was, again, the display of God's glory of the universe through musical means, basically through everything, and music was just part of it. And also, let's not forget, literally contributions. Writers like Dante, Petrarch, and Erasmus redefined literature blending classical themes with contemporary human experience. And their works question societal norms, they question politics and even religion, paving the way for the Reformation and the Enlightenment that would follow. Now, putting the awareness of the individual at the center of experience and encouraging critical thinking is often frowned upon by the established power structures. And these were very dangerous times indeed. Now, the invention of the printing press allowed information to be distributed in easier and more efficient ways, also paving the way for what would become a vast and interconnected collection of knowledge. And this allowed it to happen much, much faster than anybody at that time could have dreamt of. So, Renaissance was a period where the human potential literally exploded. We can see a density and depth of specialization like never before. Like the agricultural revolution enabled individuals to take on different jobs in life, the rich patrons of wealthy nations in the Renaissance were able to seek out the most talented and skilled people in certain fields and then give them an almost endless amount of funding to complete very specific tasks that these people excelled at. So it is like the effect of the agricultural revolution, but really supercharged, because there is so much competition in these arts. Um, and in these specializations, that it is motivating itself to become better and better. Let's take a moment to mention that in the late Renaissance, shortly before the 1600s, another major change takes place in music. That change being that the focus of music moves to the human being and its inner world at its center, as opposed to the whole universe. There is a burning necessity to express emotions to the fullest, and they start using different 
instruments, tonalities, harmonies and intervals to maximize the impact of this expression. They treat music as speech and use the science and arts of rhetorics like the ancient Greeks did when publicly speaking. So they use rhetorics for composing as well as performing. And there was a lot of competition to be the best and a lot of privileges to be gained at the top. All of this created this intense upward spiral that the Western civilizations have been in since the Renaissance. So what happened after that? What happened after Renaissance laid the foundations that were actually laid back in the classical civilizations? Well, we enter the so-called modern era, which spans from roughly 1800 to the present day. So we get into the modern era, which spanned from the 1800s up until the present day. When we boil it down, we get four most important events or processes that have shaped the world like never before. First, we have the French Revolution, but then we have also the Industrial Revolution. In the 20th century, we have the World Wars, followed by the Digital Revolution at the end of the century. So let's look at these at a greater depth, because these happenings have changed the face of classical music in profound ways. I almost added a fifth thing there, but didn't. Some people say that the information age has just begun recently, and some people claim that the digital revolution is in full swing still. But I believe that we are already in another revolution that will overshadow everything that has happened before. And this even might be an understatement. I don't know. I can't see the future, but this thing basically just crept up on us. And most people don't even realize that we are in the middle of something profound happening. But more on that at a later point in this podcast. We are going to chronologically go ahead here so that we can fully understand what's actually going on. And one of the important things that has shaped our society today is the French Revolution. So a tumultuous decade from 1789 to 1799 wasn't just a French affair. It was a seismic event that reverberated across the whole globe, challenging established norms and setting the stage for modern politics and governance. France, in the late 18th century, was a nation in crisis. So they had economic hardships, they had social inequalities, and they had political corruption that had created a powder keg of discontent. The people were not happy at all. And then in 1789, that powder keg exploded. The storming of the Bastille 
a prison in Paris became the spark that ignited the whole revolution. People were really angry and they took to the streets. Now, the revolution was a complex and a multifaceted event, but at its core, it was a struggle for equality, for liberty and fraternity. These were the ideals that still resonate with us today. The revolution abolished the feudal system. It ended the monarchy and it gave birth to the concept of actual citizenship. But they did do it in a very brutal and vengeful way. So it also had its darkest moments like the reign of terror where radical revolutionaries in their quest for justice ended up executing thousands including the French royals as well as anyone who opposed their own views. One of the most enduring legacies of the French Revolution is the declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen. This groundbreaking document laid the foundation for human rights and it inspired future revolutions and democratic movements worldwide. But the revolution wasn't just about these ideals, it also brought practical changes. For example, the metric system, the concept of secular education, and even the way we conceptualize and categorize time, these can all be traced back to this transformative period that spread throughout the continent thanks to Napoleon. We could see it as a logical consequence of the ideas that spread out in the Enlightenment period. People wanted freedom, they wanted fairness and the ability to self-govern. It took a while for these ideals to settle and to create a societal foundation. There was a lot of back and forth until they finally succeeded. Now these developments left a deep mark in the carving of classical music. New ideals were created almost overnight, with Beethoven leading the change as a beacon of light. His accomplishment was an artistic freedom that emerged in the early years of the 19th century. Expression using existing music conventions, but reconsidering in order to illuminate a developing outlook of the human condition. We have old concepts and instruments like harpsichords and the French inégalité that were thrown out of music completely, being considered old-fashioned and undemocratic, implying a connection to the elite who was able to afford to entertain musicians. Now, this was the place classical musicians used to be employed, churches and courts, and now the courts and their patronage began to disappear altogether. Meanwhile, the Industrial Revolution, stretching from the late 18th to the early 19th century, was a time of unprecedented technological advancements and social transformations that laid the groundwork for our modern lives. This was also the time where an actual middle or high middle class was formed And this middle-high class gave rise to the popularization of classical music. 
Well, of course, people knew what it was before, but now this also got dimensions of an actual industry. Because suddenly so many more people could afford expensive instruments and expensive sheet music prints. And there was high demand. So in order to make their daughters attractive for marriage, people let them be educated in the arts. Drawing, painting, singing, playing piano or the harp. A desirable bachelorette would have had more than just a basic education in these arts. And we have some exceptional talents. Also, um, for example, sister of Mozart or um, sister of Mendelssohn. And there are a lot of female composers that are being discovered or rediscovered. Well, let's call it discovered because um, during their lifetime, they never really got the chance to have any kind of career or um, to have any kind of accomplishment uh, that would have been fitting to their talent. And uh, we are now working through it as a society and looking at what happened at this time. So the Industrial Revolution providing such a huge opportunity for the teachers that could be teaching young bachelorettes. Many more teachers emerged and the printing of expensive sheet music grew every year as well. So let's paint this picture. Before the Industrial Revolution, most people lived in rural areas and goods were handmade by artisans. But then we have innovations like the steam engine, the spinning jenny and the power loom. They're just bursting onto the scene and revolutionizing industries from textiles to transportation. So we have factories springing up, cities expanding and for the first time goods could be mass produced and they could be transported over very long distances. Everything went much faster and production was paramount. But it wasn't only about machines and factories. The Industrial Revolution also brought about significant social and economic changes. So the rise of the factories led to urbanization as people flocked to cities in search of work. This shift had its pros and cons, obviously. On one hand, we have the economic growth and we have new opportunities. But on the other hand, we have very poor working conditions. We have child labor and a widening gap between the rich and the poor. We still have this widening today, albeit at different standards of living. And let's not forget the environmental impact of the Industrial Revolution, because uh, it marked the beginning of mass consumption of fossil fuels, leading to pollution and laying the foundation for today's climate challenges. Now, through today's lens, we can now examine the complexities of progress, we are asked to consider the ethical implications of what we're doing, of these technological advancements, and to weigh the costs and benefits of industrialization. For us as artists, it's also important to look at it and form an opinion on it, because it's a period that encapsulates the promise and the perils of human ingenuity. If we see 
the monophonic, unaccompanied sacred songs of the Roman Catholic Church, like the Gregorian chant, as the absolute beginnings of our Western classical music. Then the following secularization of music, the invention of the printing press and the ultimate mass distribution, thanks to the industrialization, shaped now widely how classical music, or let's better say art music, so it shaped how widely classical music was received and perceived by the general population. This is also the time where we can see the emergence of public concerts as we know them today. Before the 19th century, classical music was often reserved for the aristocracy. However, the 1800s saw a democratization of classical music with more public concerts becoming available to the general populace. Of course, behind it stood some savvy businessmen who knew how to take advantage of the situation. There was a significant rise of many iconic concert halls and opera houses during the 19th century. We might call it the era of the Romantic composers that often demanded larger and more acoustically sophisticated venues. But behind that facade and the romanticized ideal of the poor artist who lives in a dusty attic somewhere in Paris creating his own art, there was an actual establishing of new norms going on from that time. Renowned centers for education as well as performance were born. They didn't happen by chance, but they were fruit becoming from a combination of financial investment, newspaper marketing, industry connection, and visionary ideas. Now, they tried to see where this potential would lead them, and they ended up creating a very strong and widely established industry of classical music by the end of the 19th century. And then sound recordings came along. Now, what a change. Now sound could be reproduced and traded like material goods. And this exploded. We have vinyl recordings as well as radio broadcast at the beginnings of the 20th century. And while these technologies were still in development, some investors saw their chance and ultimately created the foundations for the empire that would become the music industry of the 20th century. Yes, it's the music industry, not just the classical music. It was a similar concept like before, to popularize the classical music to a large group, but this time they could not just sell the recording, corresponding to a concert ticket, but also the listening device, like the gramophone. And simultaneously, we see a large diversification in the music styles. At the end of the 19th century, composers felt like having enough freedom to continue in radically more experimental ways than before. So this was culminating in what I call the explosion around the two world wars. Now this changed the classical music for good, and we still feel its repercussions until today. I feel like 
there is some kind of disconnect to the artistic values that came before. And suddenly every imaginable style of composing and sound produced by any means can be found on stage. And this was developed into styles, so contemporary composers started looking for new means of expression. They experimented with new sound and new media, and I think much of this has to do with the burning wish to break clean with the world as it was before. Let's look at it from a slightly more political perspective. There was a prominent rise of nationalism in music during the 19th century. What do I mean by nationalism? Well, composers began to incorporate folk tunes and themes from their native countries because these were national ideas of a national identity as seen, for example, in the works of Dvorak and Grieg. Uh, in the general population, this sense of nationalism formed and it was propagated by different actors. Groups of people felt that they should belong together based on their culture and their shared heritage and um, shared language. And this feeling is clearly visible in the musical language as well. Now, all of these aspirations take a very dark twist as we enter the first half of the 20th century. Suddenly, nationalism gives rise to nations and national identities that ultimately attempt to dominate and overthrow their neighbors. And this results in the two world wars. But at this point, we aren't talking anymore about tendencies of incorporating some folk tunes into music and it being nationalistic. We are talking about a complete state-controlled music apparatus that uses music and art in general for their own propaganda. Ideas around supremacy and domination are underlined with music and a whole new identity is created. Certain artists and opinions are sanctioned or cancelled altogether, while others are put to a godlike status. Uh, talking about cancelled, you know, at a certain point in time, it didn't mean what it meant today. It meant made disappear, either in a labor camp or by murder. So, these first tendencies of nationalism, where a group of people came together because they felt they belonged together, um, which is a nice thing in itself, these first tendencies have been completely abused and transformed into a demonic national pride that was so deeply twisted where the only way they could survive, and I'm talking here from their own perspective, the only way that they could survive was to triumph over everyone else. And this is why I think that the post-World War composers just had to do something else. All of us as humanity just had to go a new way. We saw what a horrible dead end looked like and we saw the consequences of this old way of thinking. So after the war, major changes happened 
in all of the worlds regarding economics and politics too. So here we can also see a clear break-off, a decline and a later resurgence of classical music. Post-World War II, there was a decline in the popularity of classical music in favor of more contemporary genres. And the public was also tired of elitist ideas and closed-mindedness, and they wanted something new too. However, towards the end of the century, there was a resurgence in classical music, partly due to the rise of crossover artists. And... They have been incorporating classical music into other genres. But there is also the use of classical music in film scores and their wide distribution. And well, one of these other changes that kind of just happened post-World War II, and we are still in the middle of it, by the way, that was the digital revolution. Uh, for some people it's called the information age. So this revolution that is still unfolding much more rapidly since the pandemic that happened a few years ago, by the way, and this revolution is shaping our lives in every way possible, this digital revolution, unlike other historical revolutions that took centuries to unfold, this has been a whirlwind transforming society in mere decades. From the first personal computers to the smartphones in our pockets, we are living in an era defined by rapid technological change. And we haven't finished yet. Now, let's rewind a bit, okay? The seeds of the digital revolution were sown sometime in the mid-20th century with the invention of the transistor and the development of digital computers. Now let's fast forward to the 1980s and 1990s and we see the rise of personal computers, the World Wide Web and the early days of the Internet. Now these innovations didn't just make technology more accessible, they democratized information, breaking down barriers and connecting people across the globe. To find specialized information is much easier than ever before. Earlier, one had to go to a specialist or to do research in a library. Now, if the information was unavailable, one had to go to an even bigger library. Today, we have access to so much interconnected knowledge at our fingertips. But it is not just about gadgets and website or the accumulation of this knowledge. The digital revolution has had profound social, economic, and even political implications. Now, think about how social media has changed the way most people interact, how e-commerce has disrupted traditional retail, how big data and artificial intelligence are revolutionizing fields from healthcare to transportation. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about the workplace. The concept of a 9-to-5 job in a physical office is increasingly becoming a relic of the past. Remote work, digital nomadism and the gig economy are redefining what it means to earn a living, similar to the agricultural revolution. 
So for us musicians, administrative work can be easily done on the go while traveling. And even teaching lessons have moved onto Zoom via the internet. Now, streaming platforms have been a major shakeup for the entertainment industry. I do not like to call classical music entertainment, but here we are. It is the entertainment industry. Now, let's talk about the impact on this real quick. Traditional media outlets have had to adapt or risk becoming obsolete. Now, even the concept of prime time is fading away as viewers choose when and where to watch. And it's not just the big players. Like streaming platforms have democratized content creation. So we have independent artists, filmmakers and creators that can reach global audiences without the need for a major label or studio. Anyone can do it. Again, creators, independent creators can reach global audiences without the need for an agent, for a major label, for any studio behind them. The rise of the streaming platforms can be traced back to the early 2000s, where companies like Netflix, uh, which was initially a DVD-by-mail service, began to see potential of the internet for delivering content. Fast forward to today, and Netflix is a global powerhouse, producing original content from documentaries to blockbuster series. But we don't know where this is going to go. And Netflix isn't alone in this game either. So we have platforms like Amazon Prime Video, we have Hulu, we have Disney Plus that have joined, and each of them offering a unique blend of original and licensed content. And it's not just about movies and TV shows. Music streaming platforms, Spotify and Apple Music have transformed the music industry from the ground up, providing artists with new avenues for exposures and fans with endless playlists tailored to their taste. Streaming platforms have also democratized content creation. Platforms like YouTube and Twitch allow everyday individuals to become content creators for free. Influencers, even celebrities in their own right, you don't have to pay for it. And this doesn't just mean that you don't need big labels to be successful anymore. This means that the big labels will ultimately go away for good and probably even very, very soon. So regardless, you will have to take an individualized approach if you want to make a music career. The streaming platforms will take the place of the big record labels. They will be the decision makers and they will be shaping how media is consumed. However, the rise of the streaming isn't without its challenges. We have issues of licensing, content ownership and the sustainability of the subscription model. These are hot topics and we will have to find out how this develops. As more platforms emerge, each with its exclusive content, some consumers are feeling the pinch of subscription fatigue. 
So why are streaming platforms so transformative for the user? Well, they reflect a broader shift in our digital age, okay? This is a move towards on-demand, personalized experience. Streaming platforms challenge traditional media that has been feeding people whatever they thought was good or important, and they push the boundaries of content creation, and they redefine the relationship between creators and consumers. However, it is crucial to acknowledge the resulting digital divide in our digital age. While technology has empowered many, it has also left others behind. Not everyone has access to high-speed internet or the skills to navigate the digital landscape, creating a gap that needs to be addressed. Also, not everyone is able or willing to put in the work that is required to stay up to date with the newest technology. Also, we see a very worrying rise of misinformation and misinformation campaigns. So, if we say that knowledge is power, and then the decentralization of knowledge would be a very good thing, right? We would be taking away the power from an elite who maybe would have tried to manipulate us into doing their bidding, like it happened in the past with propaganda. And by decentralizing, we would have this power to ourselves, the people. No propaganda, just pure information. Well, the problem here is that the centralization of knowledge also has big benefits like having actual specialists in a certain field, like being able to afford to have specialists in a field. Decentralizing that means lowering the quality of expertise that is being delivered because who can afford to deliver quality, right? And on top of it, with the internet being anonymous, Anybody can start giving advice about anything without having any kind of qualification for it. So this is quite scary. And it reminds me a little bit of going to a shaman in the Middle Ages and expecting their advice to cure an illness that I might present. And this shaman, they would have just said something that they felt like would help me, right? So without any actual scientific backing, like, go to the woods and recite this a hundred times. And yet, somehow, I feel like these shamans would have been even more helpful or beneficial to me because at least what they had was probably a strong sense of intuition or let's call it connection to nature. What is happening right now in the internet is somewhat of a maze nobody can really dig through. So, the ones that are going to profit from this maze are the ones that are going to profit from chaos. So I like to think of myself as a reflected and informed person. And in these last couple of years, it's been increasingly difficult to feel confident in any kind of information that this information that I access through the internet is accurate. So. Why is all of this so significant? Because it challenges us to adapt and evolve constantly. Never before did we have to have so many different skill sets needed to be renewed 
and to be updated on a regular basis. Never before have we had access to so much information at no cost of time. Now this presents opportunities for innovation and for growth, but it also poses ethical and societal questions that we are still grappling with. From issues of privacy and cybersecurity to the impact of screen time on our mental health, the digital revolution is a complex, multifaceted phenomenon that we are all a part of. Now, before I get into the topic of actual misinformation campaigns, which are affecting us on a global level and are extremely dangerous, so we need to talk about them, we will talk about how you can protect yourself from them and if you can even protect yourself from them. But before we do that, let's talk about the rise of social media first. So just that we can fully understand the extent of all of this. So let's get into it. Social media today has transformed the way that we communicate and share and engage with all of the world. So here's a short overview of its history. We have some early online communities emerging in the 1970s and 80s with some bulletin board systems, BBS, CompuServe and AOL. So these offered email, these offered forums and some other community features. Then we have the birth of actual modern social networks in the 1990s and early 2000s where people could create a profile. We have Six Degrees which was launched in 1997 and is often considered like the first modern social network where people could create their own profile and uh, befriend other users. We also have the rise of blogging platforms. So this was popularizing the idea that you could share personal thoughts and personal journals online and get an audience. After that, we have the rise of the major platforms early to mid 2000s, which I was actually part of. So we had Friendster that was launched in 2002 and was one of the first platforms to introduce the concept of connecting with friends online while MySpace launched in 2003 and I remember having uh, created my MySpace profile at that time, it became the largest social networking site in the world from 2005 until 2008. Yeah, I think I created it around 2005, 2006 maybe. So this was our big thing growing up and connecting. And then Facebook came along. So initially, it was launched for Harvard students in 2004, but it quickly expanded globally and became the dominant social media platform. We do have the microblogging and media sharing from the mid to late 2000s. And then we have Twitter, which is introduced in 2006, which was uh, popularizing the concept of microblogging. Uh, with just 140 character limit for a tweet that you would post. We have YouTube that was launched in 2005 and it revolutionized online video sharing and consumption. 
And we also have Instagram that was launched in 2010 that emphasized photo sharing with a mobile-first approach. Then we have in the 2010s the messaging and the stories. So WhatsApp and Messenger are messaging apps that became immensely popular for personal and group chats. While Snapchat was introduced in 2011 and it popularized the stories format, this would be content um, like a video or a text or a picture that could be posted and it would disappear after 24 hours. Then we also have diverse platforms for niche interests that are going on from 2010s up until the present. So we have Pinterest, which is a platform for sharing and discovering new interests through images. We do have TikTok that launched internationally in 2017 and it was focusing on short form video content and has seen explosive growth. And we also have LinkedIn, which is a platform dedicated to professional networking and career development. Then we have the controversies and challenges in the late 2010s up until present. So we have the data privacy concerns that emerged where platforms like Facebook faced significant scrutiny over how user data was handled and there were some privacy breaches. But then we also have mental health concerns because the impact of social media on mental health, especially among younger users, became a hot topic of discussion and research. And we also have the misinformation and fake news that I've mentioned before. That was the spread of false information, which became a major concern, especially during election periods. So let's talk about these misinformation campaigns. We mentioned how it's great to decentralize power, right? Well, what if a government or an organization appeared to be decentralized on the surface, being represented by, let's say, hundreds and hundreds of private internet users that are all still highly organized in the background, but you couldn't tell. So let's say they took some propaganda or unethical marketing idea or an unethical idea in general and wanted to plant it in the population. So they would repurpose it in a way that it seems to be a genuine idea from a real private user on any given social network. And then this private user would just share this idea with their own friends and in the groups, right? So it seems as though it was their own opinion. And in this way, you could start spreading propaganda or unethical ideas to people and just be influencing public opinion without any real repercussions, all protected by the freedom of speech. They also have been creating ads and sharing these ads, displaying it to many different people from many different cultures and shaping their perception of reality. Now, this is an inherent problem of democracy and democratic elections. 
we won't go too much into detail. But if we see that the power lies with the people, then the one who can influence the people will actually have power. And in order to influence these people, you have to be able to do it through media. So why media? Because our brains work this way. We are inherently social creatures and we are highly influenced by what's going on around us. If we hear the same thing over and over again, we will start to believe it regardless if it's the truth or not. Regardless if it's aligned with actual reality or not. Remember how we talked about archetypes and I told you that I will elaborate on memes too? Well, here we go. Wikipedia will tell us that a meme is an idea, behavior or style that spreads by means of imitation from person to person within a culture and often carries symbolic meaning representing a particular phenomenon or theme. A meme acts as a unit for carrying cultural ideas, symbols or practices that can be transmitted from one mind to another through writing, speech, gestures, rituals or other imitable phenomena with a mimic theme. So you see here how it all is closely related. Now this next part brings a different aspect into it. Supporters of the concept regard memes as cultural analogues to genes in that they self-replicate, mutate and respond to selective pressures. In popular language, a meme may refer to an internet meme, typically an image that is remixed, copied and circled in a shared cultural experience online. Proponents theorize that memes are a viral phenomenon that may evolve by natural selection in a manner similar to that of biological evolution. Memes do this through the process of variation, mutation, competition and inheritance, each of which influences a meme reproductive success. Memes spread through the behavior that they generate in their hosts. Memes that propagate less prolifically may become extinct, while others may survive, spread and for better or worse, mutate. Memes that replicate most effectively enjoy more success and some may replicate effectively even when they prove to be detrimental to the welfare of their hosts. This, taken from Wikipedia, is a very complex text to say basically one thing. Memes are kind of successful viral ideas. Now, the dangerous part is, what if there are ideas with viral quality that are detrimental to the well-being of a whole society? And what if you find these memes and then you put these memes into circulation intentionally as a means of underground warfare. Now let's get back to Wikipedia. A field of study 
called memetics arose in the 1990s to explore the concepts and transmission of memes in terms of an evolutionary model. The word meme itself is a neologism coined by Richard Dawkins, originating from his 1976 book The Selfish Gene, as a concept for discussion of evolutionary principles in explaining the spread of ideas and cultural phenomena. Examples of memes given in Dawkins' book include melodies, catchphrases, fashion, and the technology of building arches. So, these are just a couple of examples, but obviously you can see how art, culture, and music fit into this. Well, being face-to-face -face with all of this information, this can paint quite a gloomy picture. And let's not forget that all of this is happening in the digital revolution, and all of it is built on tools. Well, tools are inherently neutral. You can use them to do good or you can use them to do evil. And I'm a strong proponent of using tools to do good. And that is the reason why I think it is so important, so important to stay informed and to stay on top of these things. Always stay informed. I mentioned the idea of being able to protect oneself from misinformation. Well, to put it briefly, there is no pill that will solve this problem. And there is no app that will do it for you either. By the way, if an app claims that it could protect you from this, it could protect you from advertisement, it could protect you from anything, they are probably trying to brainwash you too. And they are the ones profiting from your data. So what can you do? Well, the first of all, the most important thing that you can do is watch out for your own well-being. I have been fascinated by the topic of self-help, self-actualization and mental health for a very long time now. And I have even undergone recently a coaching training to bring these teachings to a wider audience. Now, I surely will do at least one episode on mental health, but probably it will be a series on mental health and well-being in the digital age and as a classical musician. But for now, be advised that this is the most important thing that you can do for yourself and your surroundings. Why is mental health so important? Well, this gives you a great amount of balance and inner stability and strength. These are the qualities that you will need so that you can, well, first, really understand where a certain kind of information is coming from and second, be able to take a decision based on the information that is right for you. So, whenever you see someone trying to cloud your judgment or trying to bombard you with irrelevant information or try to somehow shake up the quality of your self-confidence, this person does not have your best interest at heart. They truly don't. 
To be able to function, you need to be balanced. You need to be able to discern the information and its quality and where it's coming from. And you need to have the energy and the power to make decisions based on all the information that you have. If someone is trying to shake this up, they will probably be following some kind of hidden agenda underneath. And again, they do not have your best interest at heart. So the first thing you can do is take care of your mental health. And the second thing you can do is to protect yourself from misinformation campaigns. Just limit your information intake to credible sources. This means take your time to do your research. Find sources that you can prove to yourself are credible and find mentors who are already there where you want to go to. Then limit your information intake to these specific sources and also don't forget to audit them on a regular basis, like we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. Always be vetting them regularly so that they don't stray from the purpose and the original source of information. If you do have any other information intake beside of these sources, I would highly recommend taking them with a grain of salt and also do a background check as soon as you can. This also even takes into account that maybe you're in a group of friends or your surrounding can suddenly take on very weird ideas if they are, for example, victims of propaganda or victims of um, these hidden agendas that we talked about. So it is really, really important to just be clear on this. But then also do the counterintuitive thing next to all of that, that we've been talking, and also go out on a regular basis and read or watch things you would never want to consume in the first place. Go do that. Go, go watch some video on YouTube about how the Earth is flat. Make sure to see where other people in this world are at without judging, without the necessity to believe in what they say or approve of what they do, but just so you see where we are as a society, just so you can stay connected in some way. I'm suggesting this mainly because today it's so easy to slip away and to live in your own bubble and don't register anything that happens inside of that. So this happened mainly because of search engine algorithms and curated feeds in social media. And so we are losing touch with everyone that is outside of our bubble, right? You will have surely friends on social media that don't even get recommended to you anymore based on their interest or their political orientation or their geographical location. So there is a vast world out there and everyone is drifting apart while other parties are benefiting from this. But we are drifting apart because of the highly personalized suggested content that we get on a daily basis. 
And I will suggest something to you now. And I would highly encourage you to think about this deeply. Your reality is not the reality that we live in. Nobody's reality is the actual reality that is happening. Of course, we are all creating our own interpretations and our own stories behind every kind of information that gets to us. But now it's even one step further. Now we will have different kinds of information getting to us. Some of it will resonate more and some of it will resonate less. So what ultimately makes up your reality and what are the stories and the interpretations that you tell yourself is the actual content that you yourself resonate with the most. Now, this topic is really deep and it can take months or even years to truly find what is hiding behind all of that. Most people out there, they don't understand that their Google search results as well as their Instagram feed are highly curated. They are not seeing results and posts that are relevant, let's say, to the majority of the people, but they are seeing content that is relevant to them personally. How come, you might ask? Well, it's a very simple process. All of these platforms pre-calculate your online behavior based on what you have done up, on, up to that point. So, do you understand that there is a computer that is going to predict your behavior with a very high accuracy because it already knows what you have done in the past? Basically, if you like to spend your time on YouTube watching cat videos, YouTube will very soon suggest to you more cat videos to watch. If you happen to chat with a particular friend on Facebook with a lot of back and forth, you will actually see much more of their posts in the future. And this is how these mega platforms calculate your future behavior just based on some things that you did previously. Their goal is to make you stick around on their platform for as long as possible. And to do so, they will offer you content that is specifically tailored to you. Why do they do this? Well, very easy, just for the advertisement. The longer you are there, the more ads they can show to you and the more revenue they make. This means we are already living through another revolution. Something that it is just about to begin or it has begun like a few months ago, but it has been going on for quite a while now already. And this revolution is what I would like to call the revolution of artificial intelligence. And this is huge. It's a huge topic. It is something that is happening so fast and with such intensity that I don't even know where to start. This might be the single most important thing that is changing in human history up to now. It's certainly comparable to the impact of the Industrial Revolution, but just exponentially amplified, where 
productivity skyrocketed in, in the industrial revolution, right? Because manual labor was replaced by faster working machines, we have then increased the production of material goods with AI. We have created artificial, let's call them brains, with human-like intelligence that run on a computer and then can process basically unlimited amounts of data. Now, this will transform lives in ways that we can imagine like somewhat, but also in ways that we can't even yet dream of. And this isn't the stuff of science fiction anymore. It's a reality that's changing everything from how we shop online to how doctors diagnose diseases. And honestly, the sky is the limit because nobody knows yet what these things are capable of and probably we will even travel across the skies to some different planets. But let's start with the basics. At its core, AI is about creating machines that can learn, reason and make decisions mimicking human intelligence. The AI models that are popular right now are based on probability calculation, which is a very simple thing. They're just being fed a lot of data and they're predicting what is the best outcome to do based on all the data that they have. Now, as we've said, unlike humans, these machines can process and analyze data at speeds we can't even fathom. Now, this opens up a world of possibilities and challenges that we are just beginning to explore. Think about your daily interactions with AI. Maybe it's the virtual assistant on your smartphone helping you find the nearest coffee shop, or perhaps it's the recommendation engine on your favorite streaming service suggesting a movie you would like. These are simple examples that have already been going on for some time. But AI's potential goes far beyond that. In healthcare, AI algorithms are helping doctors diagnose diseases earlier and more accurately. And in transportation, self-driving cars are no longer a what-if, but when, and they're already being tested. And in the realm of natural language processing, we are seeing AI systems that can not only understand human language in whatever way they do it, but they can also generate it, opening up new avenues for human-machine interaction. Depending on what kind of model of AI is used um, and on what data it is trained, it can help us uncover biases in our thinking or our society but it can also reaffirm the biased data, unfortunately. And then it would seem like a machine is suggesting something that would be very logical, but this is just a confirmed human bias um, that's snugging through data right into it. So this is because the current models that are accessible to the public are trained on a very specific data. And this data, as we know, came from the internet and is highly biased. So it's not all rosy. The rise of AI brings ethical and societal questions that we cannot ignore. 
and issues like data privacy, job displacement due to automation, and even moral implications of creating machines that could potentially outthink us, these are hot topics of debate. Definitely, there is also a big discussion on, well, what is human? And this is why we are doing this podcast, to really find out what is human. Well, where will it all go from here? I have no idea. But for sure, it is extremely exciting. And it feels to be like a scenario from some science fiction book that I read when I was a child. So regardless of what happens, AI forces us to confront fundamental questions about what it means to be human. It challenges our ethics, it challenges our skills and our understanding of intelligence itself. And whether we like it or not, AI is here to stay, making imperative that we engaged with it thoughtfully and responsibly. Again, this is one of the main reasons that I am doing this podcast in the first place. This is one of the main reasons that I've created Artful Maestro, which is here to help everyone in the classical music field master these new challenges and tools that are changing our world so rapidly. Back in the day when I started out in the digital realm, I had no one helping me. I wished that there was a place that I could go to get information I needed. I wished that there was people in my life that would be able to answer all of these questions like in a general manner that so often just seemed out of reach. Nobody had an overview. I wished that people could help me out with decisions and situations that sometimes seemed completely overwhelming and that also felt like they would be important for my future. But as time passed, I figured out that most of the people out there are actually overwhelmed themselves. And then I realized that as the years passed, I have had accumulated and cross-referenced so much knowledge that now I actually might be in the position to offer help to others who are looking for it. And this is my ultimate goal with Artful Maestro. I am recruiting a team of skilled and inspired fellow human beings to just further distill and share what is actually important of this knowledge for classical musicians. I'm currently creating online courses next to this podcast so that everyone who is in need of guidance and mentorship can find the answers that they are looking for. And I am very happy to be in contact with experts in the field and to be part of a mastermind group which I then can share with everyone who truly wants to embark on this journey. Now we ended up talking about the future. So I've told you about my goals and where I want to go with Artful Maestro. And to round it up, we could also talk about a few topics that will affect our whole planet. So let's see what we can say about some predictions for the future that, by the way, 
I have asked AI and ChatGPT gave its answers. They said, decentralized social media will be a prediction for the future. With the rise of blockchain technology, there might be a move towards decentralized platforms that prioritize user privacy and data ownership. Now, commenting on that, we have already had some blockchain technology um, decentralized platform like Mastodon. Let's say, unfortunately, they don't have a big corporate player behind them, which means that these are not as seductive as the other social media platforms. They are not making people as sucked in into it. So they are not coming back as much. These are much more wholesome uh, social media platforms. But since um, they are not as addictive, they are not being used that much. So I don't see this really happening in future. The next thing that ChatGPT said was virtual reality VR and augmented reality AR integration. Platforms might offer more immersive experiences, allowing users to interact in virtual spaces. All right, so this could be very interesting indeed. Apple has been developing this for years, um, Google as well. We have had now the launch of some of the first VR and AR goggles in the last couple of years but it is still a very small niche. So we will see how this develops. I am not sure that um, with the gear that we have right now, like with the hardware, with the huge goggles, that this is really practical. But let's say that these devices become much more handy, much more accessible, like for example, smartwatches. This could actually mean a big change, like having normal glasses displaying different things, I could imagine this being a big, big, big game changer in the world of augmented reality. Stricter regulation. Governments might implement stricter regulations on digital content moderation, data privacy, and advertising. Well, this is already happening. This is a very big topic in the EU, and this has not been closed yet. Um, as mentioned before, there is also some warfare going on, um, some informational warfare, some propaganda warfare. So beneath it all, there will definitely be stricter re regulations. Also, this could be questioned in and of itself. What if these regulations are of a propagandistic nature? What will we do then? Where will we go? Let's see. Next one is AI. Advanced AI could continue to curate improved personalized content feeds, enhance content creation and improve content moderation. The rise of artificial intelligence and automation will reshape economies, potentially leading to significant societal shifts. Completely agree on that one. So let's move on. Ethics and sustainability platforms. As the effects of climate change become more and more pronounced, there will likely be a global push towards more sustainable practices in all sectors. 
there might be a rise in platforms that prioritize ethical considerations, sustainability, and positive societal impact. Yeah, I also see this, but uh, looking at it from a perspective where there's a lot of economic and political conflict in all of this, probably the economic conflict will always triumph. Uh, basically, if we want, this is my personal opinion, but if we want to have good sustainability and green energy, we just need to find as soon as possible a green source of energy that is actually cheaper than fossil fuels. Uh, whenever it is cheap, that's the best argument to implement something. So we will save our planet by just finding cheap energy. That is probably sourced in fusion. But that's just my personal opinion. Okay, we have the next one. Bioengineering and integration of biotechnology. Advances in genetics and biology could lead to significant changes in medicine, agriculture, and even the nature of what it means to be human. Brain-computer interfaces and other biotechnologies might lead to new forms of communication, merging biological and digital realms. Now, this one's very, very interesting. Um, I'm a little bit scared of that, to be honest. I have no idea how it will turn out. I've heard that they're already experimenting with chips in brains and whatever happens. So, yeah, I'll be reading the news. Please do surprise me. And the last one, space exploration. As technology advances, humans might establish more permanent presences on other celestial bodies, like Mars. Well, I for one would love to go to space, set foot on the moon. It doesn't have to be Mars. Moon is more than good enough for me. But, you know, that'd be nice. So, this is about as far as we will go in this podcast. It turned out to be a very long one. And we have covered a lot, to say the least. Most of it pretty superficially still. But again, this is just to give you a comprehensive overview over what has been important and what is about to come regarding classical music and our world in general. Now, I always like to do a quick recap when covering so much stuff and just point out what's been the most important points out of it all. But before we do that, I would like to mention some ideas from a book called Wired for Story by Lisa Cron. Here is a part of the introduction uh, paraphrased. So if you want to read the whole book, I can highly recommend it, since we will be also covering similar topics in the coming Artful Maestro episodes. Wired for Story by Lisa Crum. From the introduction, here we go. In history, even the most intelligent individuals once believed the Earth was flat until they were corrected. They also thought that the Sun circled the Earth, another misconception that was eventually set straight. In a similar vein, for ages, 
many have viewed storytelling as just a form of entertainment. They believed that although stories enrich our lives, they aren't essential for human survival. This idea has been proven wrong. It turns out that storytelling has been a critical factor in human evolution, even more so than the development of opposable thumbs. While thumbs enable us to hold on to things, stories teach us what is worth holding on to. Stories allow us to project into the future and prepare for it a skill that sets us apart from other species. Recent neuroscience research shows that our brains are naturally designed to connect with stories, making us more alert and open to the lessons they convey. Now, this explains why, when given a choice, people usually opt for fiction over factual accounts. It's not a sign of laziness, it's because our neural networks are hardwired to crave narratives. This insight is transformative for writers as it helps them decode what readers are biologically inclined to seek in a story. Furthermore, a compelling narrative can even alter the neural pathway in a reader's brain, nurturing traits like empathy. However, there is a stipulation. To genuinely engage a reader, a story must meet their built-in expectations. While passion is a necessary ingredient for writing, it alone is insufficient. Many writers dive into their projects with zeal, but overlook the foundational structure that makes a story resonate with its audience. So why do writers often stumble here? It's because the stories that effortlessly captivate us can mislead us into thinking that we understand what constitutes a good story. But that's a fallacy. A compelling story quiets down the part of our brain that would otherwise scrutinize its mechanics, making us feel as though we are living through the events. It's only by dissecting what genuinely captures our focus in a story that we can craft one that will be similarly engaging for readers, regardless of its genre. So, in a nutshell, storytelling is not merely a pastime, it is a core aspect of our human nature. Grasping this can equip writers to create narratives that not only entertain, but also deeply resonate with their audience. And having paraphrased this, I would like to jump back to the beginnings where we talked about representation, expression, storytelling, and archetypes. So to recap, representation is this cognitive change in human beings that actually made arts possible. All art is built on representation. Without this ability, we would not understand it. Representation is also the basis of communication, if you think about it. Everything that is written or spoken is just representing ideas, objects, thoughts, emotions, and so on. Here the expression comes into play. Expression is the act of bringing the inner world 
to the outer world, of bringing core feelings and thoughts to one's surroundings. It is also the basis of communication, considering abstract ideas as well as what's going on on the inside of a person. Now, this is highly subjective and makes for a big diversity in what is actually meaningful and what it means to be a human. Storytelling rounds all of this up. It's basically taking representations and expressions and putting them into context. Certain kinds of storytelling work better than others, and this is not really up to choice. There are things like biological blueprints that make us discern if a story is actually of value to us or not. We call these the archetypes. You're highly sensitive to seek out the most interesting stories because we perceive those interesting stories to give us the most value. And since the communication and thinking through stories seems to be hardwired into our brains, we can easily claim that this is probably the most important foundation for an artist to have. Period. Regarding the human development in societies since these cognitive changes happened, the most important were the agricultural revolution, which provided us with the possibility of specialization in different areas, and the ancient classical civilizations that built the first cultural pillars that we'll still live by. Now, there would not be any highly developed arts possible if we didn't have the freedom as a culture to spend time focusing on these arts. Time is a resource, and the agricultural revolution allowed us to free up this resource and redistribute it. Now, the cultural pillars from the ancient societies that I'm talking about are of very different qualities, but most of the fundamental things that have shaped our society, like ethics, religion, governance, sciences, art forms, even the basic understanding and calculation of time is all built on foundations laid then and there. These ancient pillars were rediscovered, thoroughly researched, and reinforced in a slightly modified way during the Renaissance. The Renaissance has shaped the way of human future for good, peaking in the movement of the Enlightenment, which prepared for the new world that was about to come. After the Renaissance era, we move to what is called the modern age. Here we have the four revolutions. The French Revolution, which was the manifestation of Enlightenment ideas in the world order that started bringing democracy. Then we have the Industrial Revolution, which was comparable to the Agricultural Revolution, which was based on efficiency, so manufacturing became much more efficient, trade as well. And then we have the world wars. Humans facing the power of the development of machines and also the ultimate awareness of self-destruction that we could create. And all of this reshaped global politics. It also reshaped arts, and it also reshaped entertainment. 
And then came the digital revolution. It was somewhat comparable to the agricultural and industrial revolution, but is also comparable to the printing press, because there is resulting efficiency, but this efficiency is in distributing knowledge and services. Now, if we look at these revolutions from a evolutionary perspective, we see that the freeing up energy and resources to firstly pursue specialization, which was the agricultural revolution, but this one gets more efficient. So then we get the industrial revolution because the specializations are even faster. And this enables us to pursue knowledge and science, but also when this gets efficient, through the digital and AI, so we are able to, to focus on, on what exactly? What is the next step? We did the agricultural, we moved to manufacture. We did the industrial, we moved to knowledge and science. And now we are moving away because this gets automated. What comes on the evolutionary scale after knowledge? Again, as a civilization, we have managed to take care of food production, which is the absolute basic, of production of specialized equipment, which is a higher development, and even go to immerse ourselves deeply in the field of reason and knowledge which is even a higher development. So what happens next? What on the human scale is higher than science? Maybe some other era will follow all of this. And maybe it will be a natural way of transcendence. Maybe this will be a spiritual era. Or maybe it will be an era of the arts. Maybe something that is so deeply human that we haven't discovered it yet because we are not even ready for it yet. Maybe we will focus on the wholeness of everything and we'll focus on sustainability too. I really do hope so that the coming generations will continue to pursue these goals because we are only strong as a whole as is the strength of the weakest among us. So now we are at the end of today's episode. And I hope you had a lot of takeaways and food for thought from this Artful Maestro podcast, your go-to place where classical music meets everything digital. We covered a lot of world and music history, from the earliest cognitive evolution to the economic and societal revolutions that have shaped our society and culture in the last couple hundreds of years. I truly do believe that we live in the most exciting of times, that there is so much happening and that we have the power to use all of it and create so much good in this world. Thank you so much for listening 
And don't forget to check out our main sponsor, Leonard Full Shop, right after this episode. And use your discount code ARTFUL5 for a 5% discount on everything. Go and create beautiful music. Take care of yourself. And see you in the next one.